The following podcast contains language that is not suitable for everybody. Welcome to issue 167 of Super Skull. It's your weekly new Comic Day Audio Digest. No big deal for the week of November 16th, 2017. My name is Nick Wybar. I am here with Curtis Sullivan. Hey, what's happening, everyone? How are you, pal? I'm doing so good today. I had a Coca-Cola Classic uh-huh. with all the calories, a full Coke, and I'm feeling good. I'm also here with Rachel Pohl. What up? Please state your name and title. Hi, my name is Rachel Polk, and I am no one of consequence. Oh, that can't be true. You're a comic book illustrator. I am. I I, I make the colors. I make the colors, and I make the comics. You're the colorist. I am, yes. Curtis, what is your name and title and serial number? My name is Curtis James Sullivan. I'm a junior, unfortunately. I hate the junior moniker, but mm-hmm. I wear it because I have to legally. Yeah. Wear it proudly. You are a junior. I am a fucking junior. Yeah. Sometimes I call myself the second. Is that, can you do that instead no, of junior? you cannot. Yeah. I looked into this. I thought you could just use them interchangeably. You cannot. Farts. That's a different thing. You're a junior. Darn it. You're a junior. <laughs> That'll follow you through life mm, now. And I am the uh, counter man, counter guy, and owner, operator of Ultimate Night Comic Books and Stuff Incorporated. Very good. Yeah. Very good. And who in the world are you? I am Nick Weibar. I am one of the hosts on this podcast, mm-hmm. and I also work at Vault of Midnight. Mm. I thought he was going to say Carmen Sandiago for a minute. I am Carmen Sandiago. I can see it in the hair. Let's. Can we just not waste any time? I don't even want to waste any time. Let's, oh, okay. Get to just, it. just get to it. Let's do some numbers. Let's do the numbers. Yikes. Oh, that is not how you want to start a podcast, my friend. Yikes. Another very tough month in the world of comic books, my friends. Another tough month. Sales declined 11% in the comic book industry in October of 2017 compared to the previous year. The entire decline due to single issues. Graphic novels were actually up almost 2.5%, which is pretty cool. But the 15% drop for single issues more than offset the very modest gains made by graphic novels. We're looking at an 11% decline, another double-digit month of declines compared to the previous year. That's a bummer. It burns. It totally burns. Image, though, Image Comics, Mm -hmm. that of uh, Savage Dragon. Yes. And Witchblade. Shadowhawk. Shadowhawk. Give me some more. Seahawk. Seahawk? He's he's another hawk character that I like. Prophet, but the shitty one. But, Yes. (laughs) Uh, oh, they, that, that one Saga thing. Also, Saga and every good comic that you're reading. I don't know uh, if anyone's ever read Saga. They secured nearly 11.5% of the market share, which is they jumped firmly above 10% for the first time all year. They've been hovering around 10%, usually a little bit under. At one point in the year, they hit like 10 and change, but this is like 11.5% of market share. That's a great month for Mark for, that, for Image. That's serious business. That's the they're actually they're almost a, a like you could call it the big three now instead of the big two almost almost they're, you it's it's been Marvel and DC and then a five percent market share publisher and then everybody else for the entirety of the history of comic books. This is kind of a massive deal. It's pretty cool. Do you know what their standard uh, market share is before this jump? And what they are compared to Marvel and DC. So they they hover around just under 10%. Okay. That's typically where they land. It's a pretty big... This is not the first time they've ever jumped this high. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the first time they've jumped this high this year. So that's pretty cool. And and by comparison, DC is about a 30, 32% market share. 30.5. Yeah, and, and Marvel's clocking in at 36.38. So and that's difference. typical. Those mm-hmm. dudes are going to trade off, and this has been the case all year. Marvel and DC are—it's been Marvel in the top slot pretty much the entire year, with Marvel maybe four or five points behind. That's pretty consistent mm. for how the entire year has looked. So, what are we looking at? Four hundred and forty-four. Excuse me, four hundred and eighty-four fewer comics were released in October of twenty seventeen versus October of twenty sixteen. 
That's 8% fewer comics. Publishers are putting out fewer comics. But October of 2016 was an overstuffed month. There's a lot of stuff that came out. And in, in general, 2016, big, big, big year. So It's because is... it was a big relaunch year. It was a big mm-hmm. DC rebirth year. And it was a year that was setting crazy records all over the place. So 484 co- fewer titles released is a huge deal. It's hard to overcome that. But they very much did not overcome it. It was definitely a, a 15% drop over the previous year. Marvel also released a few new books Fewer new books in October than any month this year except for February. It was their lowest title release of the year, if that makes sense. Yeah, I wonder why. I'm Good question. Maybe they're, you know, feeling the burn a little bit more. I think everybody's feeling a little gun-shy That's true. at the moment. Top-selling graphic novels included The Walking Dead. Here's Negan. <laughs> that was the top selling graphic novel of the entire month. You know, and that's kind of a big deal because it previously only appeared in Image Plus, mm-hmm. so it wasn't widely read even by people who read The Walking Dead. And I'm speculating here, but I bet you that destroys it in the mass market. Probably. Because it'd be an original graphic novel, Walking Dead in the mass market. It's probably going to do buku numbers there, Anytime too. Anytime Walking Dead comes out with a new volume, it lands at the top of the graphic novel list, and this is effectively a new graphic no- uh, Walking Dead graphic novel. What was the second... The second place was Batman the Flash, The Button, Deluxe uh, Hardcover. And what was the gap between the two of them? The gap between the two of them? About 7,000. About 7K. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's really substantial. And we see that a lot in comic books. You know, the top couple posting big numbers and then graphic novels and single issues. There's a precipitous drop off from one to two and everybody else. So. You know what I thought was cool, though, is that the number three spot was Seven to Eternity. Volume two. That book is so good. Which is a Rick Remender book. Oh man. Man, the the art on that Jerome Pena is just outstanding. I love to see a volume two coming in high on the list too. Volume ones do good. Totally. You know, on a on a new release or a hot book, but to see a volume two clock in, that's encouraging. So Nick, I have a question about this. Yes. Why do we care about these numbers? That's a great question. It's a very open ended question. My apologies for that, but No, that's a good question. We care about these numbers because the stuff that these where a publisher sits in the market and how the market's doing is what is going to drive future art right so publishers and editors cannot help but because at the end of the day people have to drive an income from this stuff right Mm -hmm. Um, what are comic shops going to buy what are publishers going to put out this stuff at the end of the day it's art that people are making they're going to make those calls based in no small part upon these numbers. These things matter quite a bit. Mm-hmm. It is um, just like in any, I mean, in the same way that like box office totals, like at the end of the day, you're just trying to like make a cool piece of art. You're just trying to make a cool thing as best as you possibly can. But if you release it in the middle of the woods and no one hears it, then what is it doing for the medium? What is it doing for the industry? Mm-hmm. You got a comic book in the middle of the woods. Exactly. That's not productive to anyone. Yeah. And, you know, there's value to that, too. You know, make your art, whether anybody buys it or not. Yeah. But this kind of stuff, like what Marvel and DC are doing, this is determining who's making money off of this medium at this point. So that will directly impact the two of you. You are comic shop owners. Mm. You own your own personal business. Does this affect the standard consumer in any way? Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, because we're feeling it. Yeah, definitely right? a little bit. We're having a, a weird year. I mean, it's, you know, I think it's a little bit better than some, but uh, not as good as we're used to. So we're seeing, you know, across the year, we're we're staying more or less flat compared to the previous year, while the m- industry at large is seeing double-digit declines. And we I, should say that, that that has us a little bit shaken because we, we haven't had a flat year in, well, ever. Yeah. And especially in the last 10 years, it's been very, very good growth. The industry... It's been very healthy and very good to us for a decade. Yep. And um, how old is the shop? It's 22 years now. Okay. So 21. Oh, yeah. I don't know how math works. No, he doesn't. Um, it's not his fault. Start fighting. <laughs> so, yeah. So th- that has us a little, you know, we're, we're looking at stuff. And, and, you know, downstream is a term that we use a lot. Folks coming in from Marvel and DC will, will come in the store and they're customers through the door. And then we can try to show them other things. Yeah. And as we have less kind of folks coming in for the big two or less interest in what they're putting out, I mean, it just has this trickle-down effect that is very, very real to smaller publishers. So the folks that are coming in for Batman the Flash, the button deluxe hardcover, 
those folks are coming in to get that book. Mm-hmm. They're going to find their nearest comic shop and they're going to buy that book. Yeah. There's, They've probably been watching the release date and stuff like that. There's no two ways about it. Like, yeah. if we can get those folks to see other stuff sitting next to that book, like Curtis is saying, and like open, like, hey, there's more, there, there's other things here for you. But that is, there, there's a lot more going on than that kind of thing, mm-hmm. is, if that makes sense. Yeah. Less people through the door is just, yeah, it's just, bad across the board I'm, yes. I'm sure it's affecting decisions you know Boom and IDW and everybody else are making decisions based on the overall health of the industry I'm sure yes it's got I me mean, this year's had me thinking about single issues a lot it's had me thinking about just what is the future of single issue comic books mm. we're in 2017 they're made out of paper they come out monthly they are the the people that are reading it are aging are new people coming up that are going to replace it I'm thinking a lot about what, what do single what do single issues what is their place in well, the comic book so industry? So what what do you think it is? If if we continue to decline in such a manner, and um, uh, for those of you that don't listen to the podcast regularly, several weeks ago we discussed the numbers again, and you, Nick, made the estimate that things were turning around now. And I was wrong. <laughs> oh Lord, I was wrong. So if we are continuing into this nosedive, what do you think that that means for single issues? I don't know. I just don't know. Yeah. I, I, so I don't, I'm not giving up the ghost on single issues mm-hmm. by any means, but there has to be a compelling argument in 2017 for people to want to read something on paper every single month mm-hmm. rather than a new volume of something every six months. Yeah. Or to read it digitally. Like, we as an industry, we got to be better at convincing people to do that, I think. It's not a given. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that we can just assume people are into because they have a, they're curious about comics. What do you think, Curtis? Yeah, I would I would say that, you know, there are arguments to be made for single issues and and most of those arguments are books that have the same creative team and have been running for a very very long time. Mm-hmm. Our best-selling books are Paper Girls, Saga, Walking Dead, Batman, and Batman is a mainstream example, but it's had the same creative team for, you know. When they have creative teams, they don't switch it for four or five years. Exactly, and they just keep it going. And, and readers like this, and, they, and you can have people jump in. It's not so scary when, you know, Saga is in its mid-40s. You, we're still getting new readers to Saga all the time, mm-hmm. even though it's a higher number. So this myth of number ones every other day, which we joke about all the time, every single issue should just be a number one forever, <laughs> That's not really, you know, long term the recipe. The recipe is consistent, good, creator driven books. Yeah. Yes. And because, you know, across every store that we work in, those are the books that Saga's the best selling comic in every vault of midnight. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. And that reason is consistent, good, creator driven shit. Yep. And, and I think that's the recipe. And if we've got that, and if we've got 20 of those, if we've got 40 of those coming out a month, we're good to go. And I think we've got a lot, a lot of time left in you know, things printed on old dead trees. Yeah, I, I guess that is what it is, isn't it? At the, at the, end, of <laughs> at the, the end of the day. Exactly. But we could wax sad about the state of the industry yeah. all day long. I'm just, I'm bummed out now. <laughs> but this week, some good single issues did release. Let's talk to you about the best ones. Those are our big picks. Every week, any number of trees are felled yes, and pulped yes, and turned for some reason into paper. Yep. And on that paper is printed. Sometimes they give Mark Miller some of it. Yeah, this was a living thing, Mark Miller. <laughs> Do your worst. In reality, we read everything every single week. We read all the comics that come out. It's exhausting. All 217 comics a week. Roughly. So many books. And some of them were better than others, but some of them were the best of others. These are our big picks. Rachel? Yes. What was your big pick? My big pick this week was Doctor Strange. Um, This is (laughs) issue 381. Ooh. (laughs) The perfect jumping on point for new readers. Um, In case you weren't born in the 20s, (laughs) uh, this is a good place to start. Um, So this is the start of the Loki Sorcerer Supreme um, story arc. 
And this is a, the reason it's issue 381 is because of Marvel Legacy, which is every couple of years the giant the giant publishers such as Marvel and DC like to renumber their stuff. They like to scoot it all back to number one so that it's an easy jumping on point for people to read. Marvel Legacy kind of did the opposite of that. They decided, let's go back to the original numbering. Let's uh, let's Let, make everything a high number. Let's selectively <laughs> count every Doctor Strange book that's ever come out, or like most of it, or as mm-hmm. much as we can, and then start over at whatever we think that number might be, which in this case is 381. I mean, it's a neat idea. It, yeah, maybe. I am not convinced that it's a neat idea. It's, it's an interesting idea, but I don't... I don't know what's worse, that or having a brand new number one every single week. That's not actually a number one. It's the number one. one. I prefer the number one. I prefer but the number how one. how was the book? Anyway, this book was actually really, really fun. Doctor Strange is a really enjoyable character that's full of whimsy and uh, a lot of snark, which is probably why I enjoy him a lot. Um, so this book is written by Donny Cates, who um, is pretty new to Marvel. He's done a lot of work with Image. He does God Country. He's actively doing Redneck. God Country was an amazing book that everyone should read. Um, So he's following up this Doctor Strange series after Jason Aaron, who was probably the best writer. Man, it was a good run of Doctor Strange. Mm -hmm. It was arguably the best written of Doctor Strange that has ever been. For like ongoing Doctor Strange stuff, I can't think of a better one. Brian K. Vaughn had a really sweet run. That is true. On Doctor Strange. A little miniseries called The Oath. The Oath. It was really, really good. But this most recent Jason Aaron shit was really good. Yeah. So this directly follows up with that series. And I will confess I didn't finish the Jason Aaron series. I lost a couple issues and just fell off and like I'm reading so much stuff right now that I just didn't get back into the series. So this directly follows it. Um, the the typical Doctor Strange that you know and love no longer carries the mantle. Wait, it's not it's not Stephen Strange. It is not Stephen Strange. He's not he's not a doctor who crippled his hands and he had to practice the mystic arts in order to be able to reclaim his ability to heal people. Thank you for that very wonderful summary. That stuff did definitely happen. And then something at the end of the Jason Aaron series made Stephen Strange go, nope, I'm done. And he quit his job. There was a little contest and he lost. Yeah, he quit being the Sorcerer Supreme and the mantle of the Sorcerer Supreme passed on to the next person. It was gifted. To the winner of that tournament. Which was none other than Loki. The god of mischief? The god of lies and deceit and fun. Uh-oh. <laughs> uh, I personally, I very much enjoy the character. I really like the way he's been written in this comic because he's very much like a 12-year-old boy who's been given far too much power and just runs amok with a BB gun, you know? Um, he's a real scamp. Yeah, and, and nobody knows where Stephen Strange is. Nobody knows what happened to him. So this first issue in this story arc uh, mainly focuses on Loki. It mainly focuses on the fact that he is boasting about this newfound power that he has and other people had just have no idea where Strange is. So the Sorcerer Supreme, Loki's now the Sorcerer Supreme, mm-hmm. yes? Yes. And that's that's like a job. Yeah, it is. It absolutely is. That's like, it's like that. He is responsible for protecting reality in this reality. Yeah, from the crazy shit. I don't think I want Loki doing that. But I don't Loki's think he'd having be fun. I don't think he'd be good at it. No, no, not at all. But he won the contest. All right. So so he has to do it. So I will say, um, because I didn't finish the Jason Aaron run, I felt like there was some story that I was definitely missing here. Um it's not exactly the best jumping on point for someone who has never read Doctor Strange, mm-hmm. but if you are roughly familiar with the Jason Aaron run, with who the character is, and if you don't mind spending about five minutes on Wikipedia, you can easily access this book. And you, this was you. You were that person. I was exactly that person. I didn't finish the run before. I knew who Doctor Strange was, and I wasn't afraid of looking into it just a little bit. Mm-hmm. And it actually it made me want to go finish the Jason Aaron run because I knew something very important had happened. But this book, it, all in all, is a lot of fun, and it's really hilarious. Like, Donny Cates is a very good writer. Who did the art? Uh, the art is done by Gabriel Walta, um, who is 
We know Very him. underrated. We know him from The Vision. The Vision. Yes. Gabriel Walter's got a real Mike Del Mundo vibe going he on. Does. He does. And vice versa. Yes. It's it's not quite watercolor, but it's pretty sketchy. Uh, and it's very, the colors are very tight. Jordi Belair. Jordi Belair. That girl does everything. She also did The Vision, so she knows how to work with Gabriel Walter. Um, it is, it's a very fun book all around. And I very much recommend it to people who want, uh, who actually are looking for a Loki book. I would definitely recommend this to people who like Loki. If you read like Journey into Mystery. That Kieran Gillen Journey into Mystery That's shit. just stupid good. That's where I fell in love it's, with Loki. Oh, yeah. you know, because Loki at his best, he's like snarky and he's like a, a dick. Yeah. But he also is very, very intelligent and very manipulative. And that really comes across in this book. Like Loki has a plan. He's not an idiot. Absolutely. He's self-serving, but he's just pulling everybody's strings. He's this awesome puppeteer. Loki is the kind of guy who says, I'll do anything for you. I will I will help you out. And I don't want money for it. You're going to owe me a favor. No questions asked. I He's loved that kind of jerk. I loved in this book that he was, he. there are all these rules to magic, mm-hmm. right? And this is like pretty much in fiction in general, but in the Marvel Universe, they've made a real point, especially in Jason Aaron's run, yes. of pointing out that you can't use magic unless you pay for it. There's a cost. There's always a cost. Whatever you're mm-hmm. going to do, it's going to take something of yourself or you have to spend something or you have to kill something. Like you can't just do whatever you want. There's a cost to whatever power you've gotten at this point. And Loki, who is not a human being who's yeah. been given magical powers, he's a god, right? He's He's the embodiment of chaos. He's the god. He's he's Asgardian. He mm-hmm. so he comes at it from like why do you have to pay for it? I don't think we should have to pay for magic anymore. Yeah. I, I think we should just throw that out the window. And that's like a really small thing, but it it's really neat and it changes like the stakes for what Doctor Strange is. Yeah. He's uh he's announcing this to like he's at this wizard's yeah. bar, you know. With like the Scarlet Witch and yeah. like they're all hanging out. And he's just announcing that he just and it's cool because the art really conveys like the shock and disbelief. Yeah. Because all these wizards and warlocks and sorcerers and sorceresses have been you know, playing playing ball and playing by the rules, and they're like, half of them are like, fuck you. And, and Loki other... will go as far to say, like, hey, whatever magic you want, I'll take care of it. Yeah. I'll pay the price. Uh-huh. Like, th- you got, y'all are human, but I am the god of mischief, so don't even worry about it. I'll take care of it. <laughs> and you know he's just up to some shit. Yeah. But it works so well. Yeah. And he, like, he doesn't say words to use his spells. She's like, oh, I didn't hear you say anything. I didn't see you like do any incantations or anything. Yeah. He's like, I don't know why anybody does that. It just gives away what you're about to do yeah. to other people. So I I'm just not. Like, yeah. So I'm just not going to do that anymore. Yeah, that's fucking cool. That's just a neat kind of like take on the entire way that magic has been presented in Marvel. Yeah, I kind of like it. So I would say that this is not a Doctor Strange book. This is in fact a Loki book. Yeah, and is very very fun. And I really like the fact that. All of these other magic users within the Marvel Universe, such as Scarlet Witch, have to listen to him because he's the Sorcerer Supreme, but they're all just like, oh, fuck this guy. You know, and we should say we did get a little taste of Stephen Strange and what he's up to. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I think that that will be the undercurrent, right? We'll be getting over the story arc. Loki will not be the Sorcerer Supreme forever. No. So um, it's going to be a Loki-heavy book, but I suspect we'll be seeing more of... Stefan Strange. Yeah, but it'll be low key. It'll be it'll be more low key. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Stop it. No. No. Thank you for your big pick. Thank you. Doctor Strange number three hundred and eighty one from Marvel Comics. Nick. Yes. Did you read anything? I did. You want to try that if again I without can, yawning? If I can be bothered to tell you about it. This is evolution. You want to do that again without yawning? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> evolution okay. number one from Image Comics. Skybound. Which I just saw for the first time that this is from Skybound Comics. That what brought us now. Skybound is Robert Kirkman's imprint, Correct. I believe. Yes, you are right. They have brought us things like Invincible, Manifest Destiny. Correct. Technically, Walking Dead. Yes, I Walking Dead. You're very right. Yeah. Green Valley, all kinds of fun. Green books. Valley. Thank you, Green. Mm-hmm. Va- How green was my valley? Evolution is by four different writers. Really? James Asmus, Joseph Keating, Christopher Sebola, Joshua Williamson. It's Joshua. Joshua. It's not pronounced Joshua. I'm fairly certain. And the artist is Joe Infernari. Infernari. And Jordan Boyd. And Jordan Boyd? And Jordan Boyd. Is the colorist. I'm saying it's just a big creative team and I don't understand it. It's a lot of folks on that book. 
I don't understand how they're splitting up the work. I don't understand how they are determining who's doing. Are they? There are different characters in this book. Are they taking on different sections Ooh. of the work? Are they all contributing to just this mass story? Who's writing the script? I don't know, but I'm. I've never seen a book with four writers on it that wasn't like a clearly delineated big two, like book where you can tell that the art changed and now we're reading a different story by a different dude. Yeah, I'm excited to see like when more issues come out. Like, is each issue written by a different person? I don't know. Well, I will I think say it's gonna be cool. I did read this book also. I di- it didn't feel like a hot mess. It felt like very Not coherent and awesome. Yeah, it felt very tight. Yeah, yeah. And I just I, I'm very curious as to their creative process, but I don't know what the answer is. Joshua Williams Sin is the only name that I recognized on this list. Um, well, I guess Joseph Keating did Shudder. I've I've heard of him. Joe, but Joshua Williamson worked on Nailbiter, Birthright, Captain Midnight, Flash. He's done that. Dude's done a ton of stuff. He writes some good comic books. Yeah. So what is this book about? There is some weird mystery afoot having to do with human bodies changing in some way. They're all getting gross. Yeah, they're all getting pretty gross. We open up on a doctor who is uh, has a has an appointment with a mom and her little boy, and he's checking him out. His asthma's gone. He's feeling better. He's feeling great, and the mom's a little weirded out by it. And the doctor has a great manner, great bedside manner. He's just like on the team. This is a free clinic. He's here to help. We're gonna figure this out together. He's checking the boy out, sees some scratches on his chest, which seems a little bit weird. He checks them out, and he flips out and runs away from it. They are gills. This little boy has grown gills. Fish gills. This dude, I, I got to tell you, there's a couple moments in this book, and this is one of them, where I had a visceral reaction to the doctor's reaction. Yes. It worked very, very well. When he jumps back. He uh, he jumps back and says, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> and it and that he's so composed and has his shit together so well up mm-hmm. to that point that it does it hits you. Yeah, and he immediately like straightens his coat and gets his shit back together. Like, yeah, you know, and apologizes, and you're back into it. Yes, but, um, there's it's very effective. There's a couple moments like that, and we jump from there to Rome, to a nun who has is kind of trying to talk down a dude who's having a freak out in the middle of a church, and as she's talking to him, and as she's trying to talk him down, he transforms horribly he is becomes he he like grows a weird thing on his arm he grows like an extra arm almost and is like covered in boils it's really gross yeah or maybe it was already there it was like covered in bandages and we didn't notice but something horrible has happened to him then we jump from there to someplace else so basically this is like a pastiche of different characters and stories from all over the world they're, there's something that's drawing them all together. There's something about these deformities, if that's what they are, that they're all experiencing at the same time. And we come to find out that this doctor has been studying this for a really long time. He's been like aware of these problems and has been like on the case and is aware of what's going on for years. And that seems to be what's propelling us forward. We don't know what these deformities are. We don't know what's going on with them yet. But we have... I think three different settings and three different groups of characters that are very, very well fleshed out and pretty provocative all in their own right, and we're figuring out what ties them all together. Maybe that's where all these writers come in. Maybe they're all writing a different, that's what I was thinking, maybe it's mm-hmm. like a, each one is doing a different group of people, Right. but then even still we got three settings and four writers. And it felt very co- coherent and consistent I never noticed yeah like you say in other books where you have multiple creative teams there's this you can feel a shift like dialogue is a little bit different or pacing or something to yeah. give away that somebody else is you know you, they've handed the baton to the next writer but there's none of that in this right so yep I thought it was cool I was yeah. very intrigued by it for number one issue that's evolution number one I was very unnerved by it the it's art, unnerving yeah the art is wonderful and it makes you feel weird it's got a fabulous cover too logo oh, top notch yeah Great logo. 80s VHS, you know, yeah. horror movie box Definitely. style. Yeah. yeah, and then you open it up and the artwork is very sketchy and sepia. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's sepia. warm and far away. You're right. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. It's it, it it steps out of reality while mirroring reality. It's very cool. It's very well done. Joe Infernari does a really, really wonderful job of... Making you feel squirmy and yeah. uncomfortable and displaced with his artwork. 
it's wonderful. I recommend it. Evolution number one from Image Comics. Those gills, man. <laughs> those, those gills. Gross. Curtis? Yo. What was your pick? I, I read a book this week, and it was called Fence. Fence one. It's really just called Fence number one. Mm-hmm. And um, this was from Boom Comics and from a writer named C.S. Pescott. And the artist's name is Johanna the Mad. I, Whoa. And that's that, an awesome name. And that's all I could find out. I was Googling my hiney off. Couldn't find out nothing about jo- Johanna the Mad. It's pretty good. Great name, right? So this is a comic about fencing. It's the first comic I've ever read about fencing in my whole life. I've read 27,000 comic books. Not a single one of them was about fencing. Hmm. This, so this, I would recommend this right off the bat to people who like sports manga. It's had a very sports manga feel. And I'll explain what I mean. Please explain what you mean because that is a, it's a distinct genre of anime and manga. Yes. It's like the way that Japanese comics and cartoons handle sports. It's so drama heavy. Yes. It's about human beings like just trying to become the pinnacle of, of whatever athletic field they're in. They're trying Nothing to be the best. Nothing matters more than sport. And they are into it and they are going to be peak physical professional athletes. And then you mix that in with all kinds of fun, regular life drama stuff. And oftentimes, uh, tons of romance. Yes. Like they love somebody or they, they think they love somebody, somebody loves them. It's but how, you, love. how do you balance that against sport? I want to be the best. Because you want to be the best and nothing matters more than that. That's right. But what about, but also you're in love. But what about the sport? Yes. And in figuring out the sport, you figure out yourself. That's right. And also we're always in high school. Exactly. Thing about <laughs> This genre. <laughs> Even if you look like you're 25, you're, you're in high school. You're still in high school. Yes. So this is the story of a young fencer who's living in the shadow of his father, who's the only world champion fencer from North America. Mm-hmm. And his dad left when he was really young, so he doesn't really know his father. So he's this kind of blue-collar kid who's got a lot of angst about his not knowing his dad, but he plays it tough. Like, I don't even care about not knowing my dad, but I want to be the best fencer <laughs> on the planet, just like my dad. <laughs> and... um He's trying to break into fencing, but it's sort of an elite sport, and all the best fencers go to these really great Ivy League, you know, fancy pants schools. And so it's got this great, um, you know, drama about him being kind of this working class kid trying to get into this this sport that not re- that doesn't really want him there. And uh, this first issue because it's kind of an effect, kind of like an elite institution. Fencing is you gotta have some money. You gotta have some money to fence. Yeah, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. he doesn't belong. He feels like he doesn't belong, but he's going to do whatever it takes, and he's not going to let it stop him because he's going to be the best yeah. fencer yeah. in the world, just like his dad, who he doesn't care about. Yeah, it's but a very, he totally cares about. It's a very prep school sport. Yeah, um, this was the bomb. It had I I was just in love with this from page one. The dialogue is excellent. The drama was was to the nine every page. Yeah, I mean, there's just like locker room stuff. He's the you new don't belong kid. here. Yeah, he's eating shit. He's on the field. He's got all this internal monologue while he's having his first fencing match against like this best fencer that he's got to beat. And Everyone is really sassy. It's super sassy. Like, everybody is like really sassy and snarky to one another, and yeah. it's just like like there's one point where he says, you know, I'm gonna defeat you. To the to the top dog, to the dude who wins every single round and has yeah, yeah. gone undefeated the entire year. He says, I'm going to come back and I'm going to kick your ass. And he's like, everybody says that. And there's like a crowd of people in the background who's like, yeah, I said that last year. I said that two years right. ago. Yeah, I yeah. said that when I was 14. <laughs> Which is just like manga as hell. Yeah, yeah, very. Like the the peanut gallery and their faces are all chibied out, and like, but they're all making their commentary. Yep. No, it's good stuff. This book was just funny as hell. Uh, it had all these great tense moments. I, I loved it. I'm 100% sold. The last page is just like, you know, totally telegraphed, but perfect. Yeah. And set you up for the second issue. I'm, this was the bomb. I will absolutely be back for issue two. I'm not reading another book like it. I'm very, very glad I gave it a chance. I thought it was super cool. It's also very, and it's also, it's very gay, this whole book. Yeah. Everyone's very beautiful. Yep. These are all... Uh, young beautiful boys then we are the, the part of the tension seems to be the fact that it's like pretty outwardly proudly gay absolutely I mean I, I was getting that vibe from it I don't know if I'm, I'm off base at no, all no you're but. totally right in, in the creative team we should also mention is all ladies mm-hmm. doing a comic primarily about young boys yeah you know or, or high school boys I guess these guys are in college. And especially when no they're by, high school is it okay yeah. and by the time we get to the reveal it really hammers home that like oh Okay, this is 
this is in part what this book is about, but without being about them being gay at all. Right. Those, those words are never mentioned. Their sexuality is not brought up in any way, but nope. it is like part and parcel of the story that they're telling. Yeah, yeah and it's not risque in any way or anything yeah. like this. It's just the way it's presented, I think, is extremely cool and just like... This is this is what's happening in this book. Right. And it's just a natural part of all of it. Yeah. And, and the, the creators themselves, uh, C.S. Paquette and Johanna the Mad, they've made a presence for themselves online as being like very supportive of the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically on Tumblr, uh, Johanna the Mad has her own Tumblr page, which is a lot of fan art and a lot of support. And it's like very pleasant to yeah. be on and to, to look at. She has a lot of really, really cool art online. She does a lot of fan art, um, mostly Disney stuff, actually. Yeah. It's cute. Yeah, I would recommend this book to anyone who who wants a good drama book. Uh, Fans of, this is going to sound crazy, but the Riverdale TV TV show. It's not quite as, you know, uh, racy as that. But if you like some drama, some good humor, some good character development, I just never would have dreamed that I would have. My big pick would have been a, a fencing comic this book. This is also Boombox too, which is their like young adult line yep. mm-hmm. from Boom Studios, and it's directly in. Li- it's perfect for that age group. Yep. Yeah, maybe even Lumberjanes fans would rock and roll on Most this. Definitely. Oh, definitely. You know, Most so definitely. there you go. Yeah. Yep. Uh, fans of things like Yuri on Ice would definitely like it. Yeah. Um, there was a there was a really popular ping pong book that came out. Well, there's. Are you thinking of ping pong animation? Well, I might be thinking of that too, because that's all I could think about the entire time I was reading this book. Ping pong animation is 100% my shit. It is my favorite anime of all time. Yes, that is. I'm not gonna qualify that in any way. It is the best. It's also, if you're curious about the sports anime thing, it's the best example of it that I can think of. And it's super intense. The competition is. High. I've never seen this, but it's like. It's 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 but it's reduced down to the fact that like ping pong is inherently ridiculous. Okay. But requires a lot of a- actual athletic ability, but is ridiculous, and there's no getting around the fact that it's ridiculous. It is the shit. And it's just called ping pong. Ping pong animation is what it's called. Oh, got it. Cool. I, and it's like 13 episodes and completely done, just like self-contained to this one season. You. Oh my God, everybody in the world should watch ping pong Nick, animation. Do you know anything about ping pong? I was on a, yes, I, do, I know quite a bit about ping pong. No, what were you going to say? You just, you sounded like you didn't finish a sentence there. Well, I don't mind telling you, Rachel. Thanks for calling me out. I was on the, I was on the University of Michigan, uh, in the University of Michigan Table Tennis Club. I own my own racket. I was never that good at it, but I do, I love ping pong. I, I just want to say I really enjoy you. Thank you, buddy. <laughs> do do people get pissed? I've heard this. If you call it ping pong, if you're a table tennis player, is it table tennis? I have personally seen people get pissed about that. Okay. I have personally seen people that are really, really good at it mm-hmm. get pissed when you call it ping pong. Got it. I think that's a weird thing to get pissed about. <laughs> Seems like, but you know. But ping pong animation is, whether you care about it or not, it's, a, it's, it's dope. I recommend it. Anywho. Our big picks this week were Doctor Strange number 381 from Marvel Comics, Evolution number one from Image Comics, and Fence number one from Boombox. Shall we move on? I feel like we have to. We have no choice. Time moves forward. Time marches on. For our taser this week. Wait, what's a taser? I'm sorry. Technically accurate, strategic, energetic research. Oh. Sure. Okay. Close enough. Mm-hmm. I don't actually remember what it was. But for this week, uh, this is when we, we take a topic and we just spend a little bit of time talking. Something in the wide world of comics, we focus in on it like a taser. Like we point it right at their face and shoot a it. Focused taser beam. And we spend a little bit of time discussing it. Spend a lot of energy. There it you is. Know, there like, it is. Yeah. Like a taser. Thank you. <laughs> Talking a lot, spending energy. Really good. <laughs> really good. Time. So a taser is the segment in which we break down a thing that has to do with comic books um, and give you the complete history. Of something, sometimes, yeah. complete, sometimes. complete-ish, complete-ish in the wide world of comics. Depends. And this week w- depends. Depends. This week we're going to be talking about Brian Michael Bendis, 
after hot on the heels of his announcement that he's going to be going exclusive with DC Comics after many, many years spent writing for Marvel and writing independently. 17 years at Marvel Comics. That's a very long time. And with no DC stuff in there to speak of except for like maybe a Batman story. One short Batman story. Yeah, and Mm -hmm. now he's going to be the dude over at uh, DC. And this is a huge deal. Brian Michael Bendis, as we kind of discussed briefly last week, is I don't think you can have a conversation about the most influential top considered creators in comic books without talking about Brian Michael Bendis. Mm. Dude is, he has written one, two, three, four, five books, big crossover books. He's been the architect of five different crossover events for Marvel Comics. I can't think of another writer that's done that many crossover events. No. In, in the it, past two decades. No way. He's Hickman? the dude. Jonathan Not even, Hickman? No. I think Jonathan Hickman's only done the one. Oh. Yeah. Well, that's blowing my mind. It's okay. nuts. And especially, I mean... He's done these crossovers, and then these crossovers have radically affected the entire Marvel Universe yeah. in, in major ways. And everything he's done, well, a big chunk of what he's done, has led to all the TV and movie stuff that Marvel's been doing. So his tentacles stretch beyond Marvel Comics and into Marvel Entertainment as, yeah. a, as a whole. If, you've, like, if you have enjoyed Marvel Comics or movies in the past 20 years, then you have enjoyed some aspect of what Brian Michael Bendis has brought to the table. Which and that's that's not nothing. So it's a big deal that he's moving over to a different publisher. It's a big deal for comic books. So, Brian Michael Bendis. He's a five-time Eisner Award winner. That's no joke. Always for writing. He's a co-architect of the Ultimate Universe with Mark Miller and Bill Jemis. Jemas? Jemas. I've heard it say Jemis. I've heard it said Jemis. Jemis. What does that mean? He's the co-architect of the Ultimate Universe. So the Ultimate Universe, you know, Brian Michael Bendis happened to write Ultimate Spider-Man which he worked on with Bill Bagley? Mark Bagley. Mark Bagley? That's what I said. I said Mark Bagley, for sure. Definitely. And their run is broke the record for longest contiguous run of a creative team in comic books. 111 issues. That is no That's longer joke. than Lee and Kirby. That's longer than anybody ever in the history of Marvel Comics. And that was a standalone Spider-Man story that you could read from Jump Street. And this art, th- this team wrote 111 issues of it. That's pretty dope. But the Ultimate Universe, you know, kind of was the big centerpiece of that was Mark Miller's The Ultimates. The Ultimate Universe is really the inspiration for the Marvel Cinematic shit. And we've talked about this previously on other episodes, but you can't, you don't really have the Marvel Universes the same way without having the, the what was well predates those movies is The Ultimates and The Ultimate Universe. Yep. That kind of set the tone for like this kind of fun, Big cinematic, big set piece, standalone, throw everything else out the window and just tell a good story premise of the Ultimate Universe. Yeah, and that's happening still, right? The the latest Spider-Man reboot yes. is heavily steeped in the Ultimate Spider-Man stuff. So yes. it continues now. So the Ultimate Universe, it's a big deal for comics. It's a big deal for like entertainment. It's a big deal for movies and TV shows and mm-hmm. stuff. So, and that's, you know, you put a lot of that on Brian Michael Bendis. So the not only that, but I, we mentioned that he did these five different crossovers. Uh, that was Secret War, House of M, Secret Invasion, Siege, and Age of Ultron. Those are all architected by Brian Michael Bendis. And also Civil War Two, the most recent one to wrap up. The most recent Civil War. The most recent Civil War. Marvel not, has a lot of Civil Wars. Yeah. Not a... Not a bunch of, not a, like a lot of strong crossover events, I would argue, but influential crossover events. And very impactful on, on Marvel continuity. Most definitely. And Marvel editorial and what happened in the wake of those things. When I think about my favorite crossover events, I don't, I don't, those are not the first ones to come to mind. I don't know. House of M was fun. I'm saying I have a House soft of, spot House, for House, House of, of M. House of M was a lot of fun. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Siege, though. Man, oh, just siege. we'll just ignore. Oh, that. that was with the magic hammers falling from the sky. Yeah, I remember that one. I'm saying like Thing looked really cool though <laughs> when he was all like neon and shit with his hammer. Rachel, tell me about Brian Michael Bendis's early his uh, early on in his career. So Brian Michael Bendis decided from a pretty early age that he wanted to do comics. You know, as a lot of comic creators do, actually. Um, he created a lot of fan comics and stories and wrote fanfic for X-Men, for Punisher and Captain America. In high school, he wrote like a Punisher-Captain America crossover essay and got an A-plus on it, which (laughs) is awesome and nerdy. 
Uh, at 19, he started working for a local comic shop while attending the Cleveland Institute of Art. And in his mid-20s, he started spamming comic publishers with his work in hopes of landing a gig. He quickly realized that uh, that doesn't work. <laughs> it almost <laughs> never works, and he just stopped doing that. Um, and although he is best known as being a very influential and fantastic writer, Bendis actually started his career as an artist. And he worked for a lot of local papers and magazines and things like that. That's wild. Yeah. He wanted to be an artist originally. And then he found out that he was kind of better at writing and got more involved with that. Um, But he initially got involved in doing caricature work. And he hated it. It was terrible. Caricature work like... On, on a boardwalk? Was yeah. Say, like, like at a carnival? Yeah, like if you like think Like me of, and Curtis on roller skates with our shirts off? Uh, you know, I love that picture more than anything. Yeah. But I do think it's a little weird that it's framed in your bathroom. Yeah, and that it's a photo. <laughs> Some good looking jean shorts, though. Regardless, caricature work is how he started. He hated it, but it made him money. So he saved up a bunch of money and used it to fund his personal endeavors in writing crime comics, which was kind of really what he would rather be doing. Um, And eventually he found his way over to Caliber Comics, wherein he met other creators such as Dave Mack, who did uh, Kabuki, and he also met Mike Oming, who did Powers, and they formed a very long-standing friendship there. So in 1996, Bendis came out with his first big hit, which was Jinx, which is the story of a female bounty hunter. And this was for Caliber? Yes, this was while working for Caliber. So Jinx was about a female bounty hunter, um, who, of course, her name was Jinx. She, it's a story about her relationship with a con artist and a felon named David Goldfish. It was pretty darn successful. Um, and wasn't uh, there a G.I. Joe named Jinx? Am there I definitely crazy? was. She was Red Ninja. She was a Red Ninja. Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No relation to. No relation. Mm. Okay. Entirely different. Um, but he w- did so well with this series that he uh, both wrote and illustrated himself that Todd McFarlane, the, one of the creators of Image Comics and, of course, Spawn, he took note of Bendis' work and pulled him into Image. He encouraged him to write a series, Sam and Twitch, and also Hellspine, which were majorly successful, and that's when... Brian Michael Bendis's fame started to rise. So this is like 96, 97? Yeah. Sam and Twitch and Spawn, that's hot shit. Oh, at yeah. That point. Totally hot shit. Sam and Twitch is a great comic, and Hellspawn was drawn, we should say, by Ashley Wood. Yeah. And that was the first time I found out about Ashley Wood, and that changed my whole shit because the guy's incredible. Those are actually two really good books that I think, I haven't gone back and read them, but I bet you stand the test of time better than some other stuff that was coming out in 1996. Oh. Brian, Brian yep. Michael Bendis can write a crime book, and that's what... That's Sam and Twitch. Those are they're, yeah. they're two detectives. Yeah, yep. and that was like that was his bread and butter. Like that's what he wanted to be doing. Yeah. And so when he was very successful with writing Sam and Twitch and Hellspawn, he ended up start starting to experiment with other genres, and that's when he teamed up with Mike Oming and created the Powers comic. Um, Powers it, is the shit. Powers is the comic book that got me back into comic books. Really? Yeah, because I read comics as a kid all the time, and then there was like a period of time where I just didn't at all. And then somebody like forced Powers Volume 1 into my hands, and I just ate it up, and it got me back into comics. Curtis, what's the premise of Powers? Powers is about a, a superhero who loses his powers, and now he's a police detective, and he works in the Powers unit. And he's a, so he's an ex-superhero who was really powerful. He's like almost a Superman-level guy. Now he's just a detective, and he's working these cases that involve super criminals anytime, and super people. Anytime something happens in the city that has to do with super people, then they call this unit. Mm-hmm. The, the powers pow- unit. The powers unit. And this mm-hmm. is about that unit. Yeah. It's Which, so good. Powers, we should say, also got made into a television show for the PlayStation Network. Ooh. I never saw it. Not yes, good? It, oh, it's very bad. Oh. They did two seasons of it. No good. No. Very, very bad. Well, there you go. Don't watch that. Just read the comments. <laughs> but they did totally make a show out of it. <laughs> All right. That did happen. And and also, it was so successful that it won an Eisner as well as a Harvey. This was the beginning of him winning his awards, I believe. Yes. Was with Powers. It was, because that's when he started, like, he was on the map after Sam and Twitch and Hellspun, but this made him noticed, and that's when Marvel started talking to him. Yeah. And then we have... The Age of Bendis. The Marvel Age of Bendis. <laughs> now, this is like in starting in the 2000s. He's coming hot off of the presses with some indie stuff and the image books. 
image is not the publisher that it is today. Uh, and he kind of switches gears and starts writing for the big boys. Yeah, for so Marvel Comics. Marvel had an editor named Joe Casada who was definitely keen on bringing in some new voices. Mm-hmm. Marvel was in an interesting space themselves at this time. They brought in Casada to mix things up, and he did indeed. So we've talked about some of this, but we'll just go through the big beats here. He uh, Bendis's first gig at Marvel Comics was Ultimate Spider-Man, as we mentioned. Uh, based on the original Spider-Man story from Amazing Fantasy 15. So even though this is a reboot and kind of like a retelling, he's very, very uh, keen to preserve what makes Spider-Man awesome Mm -hmm. and is paying attention to the roots of the character. And this goes on for years and years and years. It's very, very successful for Marvel. So successful that it uh, would beat Amazing Spider-Man in monthly sales, which is pretty incredible. A new kind of offshoot of the character, a retelling of the character, outselling Amazing Spider-Man, which was in the mid-600s at that point. To this day, if I am if I got a little kid in the comic shop yep. and he wants to read Spider-Man for the first time, I am giving him Ultimate Spider-Man Volume 1. Totally holds up. I think it's one of the absolute all-timers for the character. Yep. If you want to read some good Spider-Man... Just jump right in. There you go. Now, when you say the character, should do you mean Peter Parker? Because he also made a different Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So we should say, yes, this is the Peter Parker uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, which goes, well, so it's 111 issues with Mark Bagley, but that series does run to 160 issues with a couple of the different artists, and towards the end of that run, we get a new Spider-Man, Miles Morales, which is still around today, a very, very popular character. Also, another big, you know, contribution from Brian Michael Bendis to the Marvel Pantheon. Yeah. Mm. So, based off the success of Ultimate Spider-Man, there's a whole Ultimate line, which we definitely got to put at the feet of Brian Michael Bendis, Ultimate X-Men, Ultimate Fantastic Four. So, uh, we should say there's no Avengers movie without the Ultimates. And this just goes on and on for the 2000s. Bendis is just knocking out of the park. He, he comes on to Daredevil in 2004, writes 55 issues of Daredevil for almost five years. I would say this is what brought Daredevil back I know in our stores, to the, f- the forefront of the Marvel characters. The books were selling like crazy. The same writer for five years on a book, that, it was just great. And after he revived the character, Daredevil went on to many great things. Probably why we have a Netflix show called Daredevil. It, yeah. It's very based on that Bendis era stuff. So he also launched Marvel's Max line with uh, the Alias comic book, which is Features Jessica Jones, which he created, which he created, which not also has a television show, and and so, which is incredible. That's another book I would highly recommend anybody to just pop in if you want the best of BMB. Check out Alias or Jessica Jones, it, totally great book. And you know the Max line over at Marvel was their their R-rated sort of adult line, which they never dream. You know yeah. you would never think that Marvel would do this. It's their hardcore. This is in part you know. Brian Michael Bennis, another monster thing he did. He had a huge, huge run on the Avengers, which was also a little controversial, we should mention. Brian Michael ben- Bendis is, Brian Michael Bandis, he's very beloved, but he also has some people who don't beloved him. And yeah. his Avengers run was kind of the start of him getting some flack because he killed some people, maybe his continuity wasn't as tight as some longtime readers wanted, maybe his characterizations weren't as is on as they should have been. That dude doesn't sound like what I think he should sound like. Exactly. And I'll back that up. Like, Civil War too. I was like, why the fuck are they these characters acting like this? This right. is not how Tony Stark should act. This is not how uh, Carol Danvers would act. This is baloney. So anytime you get a... So Brian Michael Bendis has a very distinct voice. Like, you can read any dialogue that he writes. You can almost pick him out of a lineup. You can hear the Bendis. Just, like, show me a page of dialogue, and I can maybe like nine times out of ten tell you if that was a Brian Michael Bendis page of dialogue, right? And that means that sometimes when it's that strong and when it's coming through that thick that it's you hear that more than you hear Peter Parker or you hear that more than you hear Steve Rogers or yeah. whatever. True. It's it's a give and take. Yeah. That's yeah. a very good way of explaining it though. And overwhelmingly I think Bendis has contributed you know, his this good stuff far, far outweighs the bad stuff. But um I will I will forever be upset about what he did to Carol Danvers though. In Com- in Civil War 2? Yeah, completely. A lot of people. Un- yeah, he completely did un- undid Kelly Sue DeConnick and it made me really upset. I did not prefer it. I'll back you up there. Yep. Yeah. And by that you mean Kelly Sue DeConnick had done this particular thing with the character mm-hmm. that kind of built her into 
what? She was a very strong, independent, feminist kind of character who was, very clearly didn't need other people to take care of and her. And was on top of her shit and Absolutely. was as significant and as like impactful in the Marvel Universe as anybody else. Mm-hmm. And she made some pretty dumb choices in Civil War Two, yeah. uh, under the the scribe of BMB. Yeah, yep. and it very much turned back into the character of like, well, I'm just a dumb woman, and I gotta talk to the men. I don't know if know it was better. that bad, I, but it it did suck. There there is a specific panel where she is arguing. I believe it's with Captain America. She voices her opinion on something. Captain America looks at her and says, "No, that's not right." And she thinks to herself, "There's a thought bubble there." That's just like Steve always thinks that he's right about everything. And then Steve says his dialogue completely negating what she said. And then it, she has a scowl on her face and says, well, I guess he is usually right. Like, fuck you. Wow. That's fair. It, hey, that made me very upset. I will say I that I feel you. Yeah. No, I and we've heard this. This is not yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this. He got he took some heat for that. Yeah. And I'll, I'll I'd say Civil War Two was a was a stupid comic. <laughs> it was a mess. <laughs> it was a hot mess. So he's had a long, awesome career at Marvel. Civil War Two was was definitely not our favorite. No. But you know, maybe his move to DC I think creatively is very exciting. Uh for us as readers, but also for hopefully probably him. Yeah. You know, shake it up. Get out of your comfort zone. You've been over there for seventeen years, man. Come over, climb the Superman mountain and, and see Please what's write, up. Write Superman. Please, Please write Superman. I would love that. That would be rad. So and we should say that this is the easily the biggest news in comic books in in a grip. Yeah. In terms of like creator comic book news, it's a huge deal. Yeah. I'm pretty dang excited. It's and like it would have been. I don't know what the equivalent would be at any point in history, but it's like if you know Stan Lee early in his career moves over to DC. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I'm saying? Like it's 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 not the same, obviously, but like that's how synonymous. That's how important Brian Michael Bendis is to Marvel right now. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and and uh, we definitely spent a little bit of time there shitting on Civil War too. Yeah. Because it's bad. But he's not a bad writer. He's an absolutely incredible writer. I just didn't want to end this segment on a oh, negative sure. level. Oh, for sure. I don't think it's, it's... I think those crossovers are tough under... the. Some of my favorite writers crash and burn on those big crossover absolutely. events. They seem tough to write. Yeah. It's and the most editorial control. It's the most constraints of mm-hmm. like any type of writing in comic books. You have to contend with... However many other writers that all have to write stuff that tie into it. Yep. You are basically like given like, hey, here's your point A and your point B that you have to get to. And then everything else just somehow make it work. Yeah. Yeah. And and I hope that he succeeds in D.C. because he was starting to get burned out. And you could hear it, especially in something like Civil War Two. Uh, if you were to read Civil War Two side by side with House of M, like... He, you're a su- you don't know that he was getting burnt out. You're, no, you're, no, it's, you were reading burnout. I was reading burnout. Yes, and I would much rather somebody move on to something completely different with a lot of success than continue to go down the same road that they were at and just reach burnout and just fall on their face. <laughs> Quite frankly, you're saying but. retire, retire a champion. Yeah, go out on top. Yeah, or just or just shake it up. Go, just shake it up. Yeah, exactly. So cool. Thank you, Brian Michael Bendis. We're going to follow your career with interest from go, from here on forward. For here on forward. Starting from today. Yeah, Br- Marcus isn't here, so I'm making up s- sayings. From tomorrow to... I'm coining phrases. The future. I'm sticking a coin in a phrase, as Marcus would say. All right. <laughs> this bit's got to go. <laughs> Let's do a board game in the corner with okay. these three dudes. Yes, I'm a dude. It smells like camel this week. Why does it smell like camel, Nick? It smells Nick? like a caravan and turmeric and oh, sunsets turmeric. and silk and sand. Is You're conjuring. Some, is that some paprika I smell? It's, mm. it's a little bit of paprika. What you cooking? Is that a chili? I'm cooking a board game called Century Spice Road. Oh, that smells like cardboard it's a game about spice trading as many games are turns out there's a bunch of games about spice trading hansa teutonica hansa teutonica is not about spice trading i don't know i definitely put spices in there not even close you're you're a spice game this game thank you this game is designed by emerson matsuchi who has designed uh games like specter ops and crossfire neither which i've ever played i have totally played crossfire and it's nothing like this game is it good it's great (laughs) 
It really is. It's from this company, Plan B Games. It's a brand new publisher, brand new to the game. Uh, Century Spice Road was our first game, in fact, and it was released in June of this year. That's not a bad way to kick her off. Yeah. And it released to fanfare. Too much fanfare. People are way into it. There's a lot of demand for this game before it even released. Was it at Gen Con? At Gen Con, mm-hmm. and uh, expectations were just very high for this game Excellent. as it was coming out. That Sold out. W- wonderful way to start a career. It's been really tough to get for a minute. And it's been hard to come by at the old retail level. So Century Spice Road is a resource trading game. It's an engine-building Cubathon. <laughs> Cubathon. I think we need a name for this kind of game, of which I've played hundreds. Mm-hmm. They where cubes are the whole shit. It's all about trading cubes for other cubes, and then you get cubes. Yeah. I here are my suggestions. Please tell me which one is the best one. Okay. Cubathon. Mm-hmm. You might have remembered that from when I called it a cubathon a moment ago. Go on. Not impressed with that one. Cube life. Mm, not yet. Okay. God cubes. You guys gonna play this new God cubes? Here's my final submission. Go cube yourself. Ooh. Ooh. This is All a right. worker placement. Spicy. Go cube yourself. Uh, well, I like I like how, yes, Caliente that one is. Mm. You like mm. that one? I say yep. we open this one up to the Twitter poll. Okay. I say the internet, decide. The point is, I don't know what to... There's a lot of games like this, and there's not currently a name for them in the marketplace where you've got all these different color cubes, you trade them in, mm-hmm. you have an engine that's getting you more cubes, you trade them out for different cubes. Cubes. Cube centric. I would say we need a cube name because, like you say... I would say 69% of every game that I play involves cubes. But And it could have cubes in it, but this one's really all about cubes. It's very cube-heavy. The entire heavy. thing is just, what are you doing with those cubes? It's cube-centric. It's cube-centric. So explain, That's not bad. Please explain this game to me, because I am now starting to despise the word cube. Cube, 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 cube. So please cubes, stop. the cubes are spices. There's four different types of spices. I can't remember what they are. Turmeric, um, cinnamon, paprika, uh, Mrs. Dash is the best one. <laughs> so you get these spices, you trade them in for better spices, and then you use those spices to get cards that allow you to get and trade spices more efficiently. Every time I'm saying the word spices, I could be saying cubes, uh-huh. just so you know. And I'm building an engine to get more and sweeter cubes over the course of the whole game. And what, over, eventually, my engine's going to allow me to buy cool shit, and those are my victory points. And your engine is a bunch of cards in your active card hand that let you trade some cubes for other cubes. Yeah. They let you just get some cubes. Yeah. They let you upgrade some cubes to other colored cubes. So on my turn, I might, I've got a big hand. Uh, i got a big hand, and it's all these different cards. And I put one down, and it's going to let me turn one of my turmeric cubes into a Mrs. Dash yeah. on that turn, right? And then I just take that, and that's the end of my turn, and then it's Curtis's turn. Mm-hmm. And he might buy a card from the middle of the display and get some victory points. And then Rachel might what? Turn. Take all the cards. Take all <laughs> the cards. Uh, specifically look over at what Curtis is looking to buy next, because I can see what... Uh, what spices money. he What's, has? Yeah, what spices he has, and I can completely undo his, yeah. his turn. Yeah. This game moves quick. Yes. yes. It is very, very easy to pick up. You can teach it in minutes. Yeah. Three minutes. This yep. is something I would bring to my parents' house. You could play this game with your parents. Oh, yeah. You Be- could play this game with people that don't play board games. Yeah, and my dad will only play Settlers of Catan. If this is somebody that has, if they've never played a board game ever in their life, or if they have just been playing Settlers of Catan and Ticket to Ride, Century Spice Road. Mm-hmm. This is the next game for them. Mm-hmm. Very, very easy, very simple. Very easy to pick up. Two seconds to set up. There's almost no setup. You shuffle yeah. some cards. You put your bowls out with your spices. And you were talking 45 minutes for the whole game, go. max. Mm-hmm. 45 minutes, an hour would be, seems way too long for it, this game. And once you play it a couple times, like today we played it, we rocked it in half an hour. Yeah. Yeah. At and, most. And that was minutes. my first time playing. Yeah. You two had played before. It just so. moves so quick. Yeah. What it's did a- you guys think? Rachel? Um, I, I had a lot of fun. Uh, it was very easy to learn. It's definitely like a very good entry level game or something if you want a. M- it it borders on a mindless game, it does um, because in some ways it is what it is and it can't be more. There are certain games like dungeon crawlers where you can delve into it and you can just get into the squishy bits, but this is, it's a trading game, that is what it is. 
Yeah. And it's fun for what it is, and it's really enjoyable, and it's a very good start for this new company. Um, and it's something that is is wonderful for playing a couple of times or giving to people who aren't used to board games. Sure. Yeah. Curtis, what do you think? I have played this. I think I got five or six games under my belt, mm-hmm. and I agree with Rachel. Everything is revealed it, when it, in one game. You what, know, and by that you mean you kind of know all the moves. There's not like deep, deep strategy to this thing. You're going to get some cards. Oh, I should have done this differently this yeah. time. There's none of that. I'll play it totally different next time. There's yeah. a little bit of that your very first game, and then it, and then. But you halfway realize. through, it becomes pretty clear. Yes. Yep. Yep. And there's little subtle things that you might think about. You might think a little bit more about what other players are doing. You might think about. Um, you know, buying things quicker or slower based on how the cards are going to move. But other than that, yeah, you know what you've got one game into this. Yeah. So is it going to give you a million plays? Um, with new people, yes. And with people who, who don't know about a million board games, fantastic. I would bust this out literally with anybody. I, I would feel safe with any type of player. I yeah. say it's good in any library because you can always, always, always play it with people that don't play games. Yep. And it's very, very friendly for that without being like a party game, without being like a, you know, a cards against whatever. Yep. Yeah. It's, it's very accessible while still being like a game and you kind of have to think about it and there's a little bit of strategy but not too much. I like I like thinking about a couple turns down the road. I like a game where you're you're building an engine and you're thinking about one or two turns down the road. Yep, but like that, that turn is less than a minute away, mm-hmm. and it's just and it's gonna keep moving. Yep. So yeah, that's Century Spice Road. I recommend it. I'm gonna have to ask you to cube your enthusiasm there. Hmm. Okay. All right. I'm gonna stop making jokes now. I think we should end this podcast. Do you wanna that do you wanna end the podcast on that joke? Sweet yes. closing joke. Yes, I do. This has been another episode of Super Skull. Our producer and editor is Rachel Larry David Polk. Our music was created by A Bomb. Super Skull is recorded every week in the Ann Arbor District Library. Please subscribe, download, and review the Super Skull show up on that iTunes, on Stitchers, and please do that. Yeah, those reviews help us out a lot. They help other people find us, and they help the world know that we exist. They're super great, and it takes two seconds. Also, don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us at our website. Super Skull Show is how you find us. Super Skull is brought to you by Vault of Midnight, Earth's finest comic books and stuff and podcast since 1996. My name is Buck Dancer. And I'm Larry David. And I am Curtis James Sullivan Jr. And we wish you very good reading. Until next week. I lied to you. My name is Rachel. He doesn't know the words to that song. That's no. those are the words. Yeah.